The Tom Woods Show, episode 1512. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, when you criticize the Federal Reserve, you get all these lackey-style responses. Why the Fed has made the economy more stable. You don't want to go back to the 19th century, do you? All kinds of arguments like that. Well, you can blow those and others out of the water with my free ebook, Our Enemy, the Fed. Grab it at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here talking about so-called isolationism today. You know, the nice thing about having a podcast, one of the many nice things, is that something can drive you crazy. And instead of feeling helpless about it, you remind yourself, hey, wait a minute, the old man has a podcast. I can do an episode on whatever's making me crazy. And today's thing, today's making me crazy thing, is the use of the word isolationism by terrible people. All right, we're going to talk about this a little bit. Isolationism. There is never a reason to use this word. This is an agitprop word. It was invented to smear people, to obfuscate. It is used always to obfuscate and never to clarify. That's a general principle about the word isolationism. If you are accused of being an isolationist, it means generally you want freedom of commerce and cultural exchange around the world and to avoid military conflict. That makes you an isolationist. According to crazy people, not normal people, a normal person would not in any way describe that as isolationism. And I'm often fond of uh, citing the moniker that, uh, what's his name? Uh, Richard Cobden acquired in Britain in the 19th century. Richard Cobden was the great 19th century classical liberal, one of the great ones in Britain. And he was in favor of international commerce, but also peace. And so he was called not an isolationist, but the international man, because that makes a lot more sense. So there are a couple of people who have been using the word isolationist over the course of this week. One of them is Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina. And the other one is Bill Weld. So I want to go through and review this here. Now, as I say, there is never any good reason to use this word. You know this is a word that the regime employs to demonize opponents. It clarifies nothing because basically there is nobody who genuinely favors isolationism in the sense of we're going to isolate ourselves from the world. We're going to be entirely self-sufficient. We're not going to have cultural exchange. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? There's nobody who favors that. So this is just meant for low IQ people. That really is what it's meant for that they hear this scary-sounding word and they think, well, I don't want to support somebody about whom we can apply this scary-sounding word. There's no way it's meant for thinking people. So you should never, ever use it, ever. There's no reason. It contributes nothing to any discussion at all. Now, Bill Weld, as you know, is the former Massachusetts governor who also was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2016. And we keep getting to a we meaning people like me who thought Weld was a bad choice, keep getting told that we're making the perfect the enemy of the good, and actually he was a pretty darn good libertarian, and he kept getting better, and he even got better in foreign policy. And, well, when did he get better in foreign policy? We were seriously told during the campaign. Oh, great. I'm sure that was just a coincidence. During the campaign. He was learning from Gary Johnson. We, we actually have heard this 
said with a straight face. He was learning from Gary Johnson about non-interventionism. Well, Weld has just written an article in Foreign Affairs, which is the flagship publication of the mainstream bipartisan foreign policy consensus. Now, if there's one thing that makes a libertarian's blood boil, it is the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. Okay, this is precisely why we exist. It's one of the reasons we exist, is that this bipartisan foreign policy consensus and the assumptions that inform it brook no disagreement. If you disagree with it, why you are, what else? What else would you be? What else would you be other than an isolationist, right? That's the word they have. That's it. They got that one word and doggone it, they're going to use it. That's what they're going to apply to their opponents. And there's so much to be gained from looking at the world differently than through the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. And libertarians have a lot to say about foreign policy. And it's not, let's get back to the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. Oh my gosh, then why are we even here? What would the possible point be of being a libertarian and actually being politically active as a libertarian in the libertarian party, if that's your view? Now, the views that I'm about to ascribe to Bill Weld come from this article in Foreign Affairs, and it's an article that he wrote, obviously, as a Republican, because right now he is, you may not have heard, but he's running for president as a Republican, challenging Donald Trump. So you may say, Woods, you can't blame the Libertarian Party for this. But yes, I can. I can, because I was told that he changed his mind on uh, foreign intervention, and he's totally reliable and sound. Well, not really. Not really, because... You don't, we all know what this article means, okay? You read this language, it's all catchphrases, it's all platitudes. So it's, I mean, it's, I'm linking to it at tomwoods.com slash 1512 because I genuinely want you to look at it. Just take a few minutes and look at it. Tomwoods.com slash 1512. Click on the link for the Bill Weld article and just take a few minutes. It reads like a seventh grade essay. I, and I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, there are some people out there who are very smart and make very good arguments against libertarianism. I don't agree with them, but they're smart and you have to reckon with them. You have to take their ideas into account. But this ain't it. And you look at this article and it's just it's just one platitude after another. It's I mean, I'm almost embarrassed for him that this is his article. So in there he says I'm running against Trump for the Republican nomination for president in part to return the United States to the stable bipartisan foreign policy that brought the United States through the Cold War. Okay, that's just impossible. That's in, I cannot imagine a libertarian saying those words. So maybe Bill Weld's transformation was as superficial as we all said it was at the time. We all said it. And no, 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 you, you guys are all terrible, we were told. We're, you're all terrible. He's a wonderful person. Um, and I'm not even going to go through his domestic stuff about how he wants the, the president unilaterally to punish carbon use or whatever. I mean, at this point, there's no, we won this argument, right? There's, you know, there's no need to, to keep kicking the, the corpse here. Like we won this argument. Weld says that Trump opposes anything President Barack Obama ever supported except isolationism and governing by executive order. So let, let's focus. I'm talking about isolationism today. So he thinks Barack Obama, Barack Obama, who, you know, intervened in, I mean, there were bombs dropped in at least eight countries I can think of, was an isolationist. Was the American presence in any of the, you know, 100 plus countries where there were troops stationed, was that discontinued anywhere? 
In fact, he said to the country, no, 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 if we were to do that, that would be isolationism. That's what Barack Obama said. Obama was an isolation. Now, again, imagine this man as a standard bearer of libertarianism. That's just sheer obfuscation. How does that clarify? How does that help people understand the world better to call Barack Obama an isolationist? Are we proud of that as libertarians, that this man goes around saying inane things like this? Is this helping people understand how the world works? The problem is precisely the bipartisan foreign policy consensus of which Obama was every bit a part. It's not that some people favor intervention and having the U.S. lead the world and others favor isolationism and Barack Obama was on the isolationist side. Barack Obama was a center-left representative of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. That's the correct answer. Not Barack Obama was an isolationist. Can you imagine that? How embarrassing that this guy was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. And he says inane things like this. He says that reestablishing or rebuilding this uh, bipartisan foreign policy means restoring deep connections with our European and Asian allies and with Israel. It means building on the changes that brought Middle Eastern countries into alignment against religious extremism and terrorism. It means supporting African countries in their battles against terrorists and their efforts to build effective, independent democracies. Oh my God, this is getting exhausting already. And it means recognizing that issues such as the environment and the future of our planet demand multilateral cooperation. Okay, well, anyone could have said that, right? That's, that's straight out of John McCain, right? Is there anything John McCain would disagree with there? Is there anything Lindsey Graham would disagree with there? So is there any reason to believe whatsoever, based on these platitudes, that a President Bill Weld would have changed much that would have been noticeable? I see no reason to think that. Now, then he covers himself so that his lingering supporters can still, you know, he'll, he'll give them two or three sentences here and there that they can desperately point to to pretend that he thinks things that he obviously does not think. So here are the ones they'll point to. A full-blown neoconservative approach using force and spending blood and treasure wherever something has displeased us, dissipates and often wastes U.S. power. Our Constitution and our wallets would be better off if we did not have to use force anywhere. Still, we must keep that option in our back pocket. All right, well, what? Big deal. Okay, well, almost nobody really believes that the U.S. should spend blood and treasure wherever something has displeased us. Even the neocons don't put it that way. And then he says, the United States is the guarantor of a world order. So, all right, imagine that being carried out using libertarian means. The guarantor of a world order. Okay, it's possible that he could mean entirely by persuasion and through unhampered commerce. I guess that's possible. You know, you read that as you wish. He's writing this in the flagship publication of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. They know what he means by this. And he knows what he means by this. He knows who his audience is there. The United States is the guarantor of a world order that since World War II has been safer, more prosperous, and more open and inclusive than ever before. And he says, we have spent too much blood and treasure building that order to turn the historical page backward as the uninformed and incurious Trump clearly intends to do. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. For that reason, we must carefully conserve our strength using force only where it is necessary. So they'll point to that too, I'm sure. But again, what does that mean? Who disagrees with the statement, we should use force only where it is necessary? Is there anybody in the U.S. who says, let's use force where it's unnecessary? 
There's nobody who says that. So that statement doesn't guide us in any way as to what a Bill Weld foreign policy would be. A Bill Weld foreign policy would be squarely, he tells us, it would be squarely in the tradition of the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. Now, over at the American Conservative, at theamericanconservative.com, there is some commentary by Daniel Larison on this whole question of the use of isolationism. I'll link to those pieces as well at tomwoods.com slash 1512. But going back to where Weld says, I'm running against Trump to return the United States to the stable bipartisan foreign policy that brought us through the Cold War, Larison correctly says, I'm not sure what the constituency is for such a return. It's not clear that it would even be desirable if it were possible. For one thing, the stable bipartisan foreign policy to which Weld refers was a function of the Cold War rivalry with the USSR. It's not possible to return to such a foreign policy without having a major rivalry like that. The U.S. needs a foreign policy that addresses the realities of the present, and running back to an old bipartisan consensus won't provide that. And then he says, there is an unthinking dogmatism about Weld's formula. But what a great way of putting it. In just repeating these platitudes, it is an unthinking dogmatism. Uh, There's an unthinking dogmatism about Weld's formula that treats deep connections with these other states almost as if they're ends in themselves instead of a means of advancing U.S. security. Larison goes on to say, the problem here isn't just that Trump hasn't retreated into isolationism, as Weld hilariously puts it, but that Weld is so determined to shoehorn Trump into this category because his own foreign policy worldview is boilerplate hawkishness, and so therefore isolationism is the only thing he knows to attack. And then Larison continues, Weld gets Trump's foreign policy wrong, and his analysis of foreign threats seems to be similarly blinkered. He says this about Russia. Russia appears determined to redraw its borders to match those of the former Soviet Union using military force if necessary. This is false and alarmist. And then Larison has the same reaction I did to Weld's disclaiming any neoconservative approach. He says it's not clear where Weld actually disagrees with that approach. Like them, he insists that the U.S. is a guarantor of world order, which implies a similarly aggressive foreign policy of maintaining hegemony and punishing challengers. He says that we should use force only when it is necessary. But necessary for what? If he means necessary only for U.S. and allied security, that's one thing. If he means necessary for preserving world order, that is something very different. And then Larison points out that you should look at what Weld has to say about North Korea. I mean, I don't understand why the editors of Foreign Affairs didn't stop him here. He says, every U.S., this is Weld, every U.S. administration since the Cold War has been determined to prevent North Korea and Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. As president, I would be no less determined. If North Korea and Iran obtain or build nuclear weapons, then it will be the fault of the United States and its partners. All right, you you get the problem here? North Korea has had nuclear weapons for more than a decade. All you have to do is just Google North Korea nuclear weapons. That's really all you need to do. Just type those words into any search engine and you'll find they have 20 to 30 nuclear weapons and fissile material for another four or five dozen. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't understand how Weld could write this unless he really doesn't know that. How, how, I don't know what to say about this. Not to mention, I mean, Iran we can debate, but it has repeatedly committed itself never to build or acquire nuclear weapons. So, all right. Now, it's true that 
Weld is, I think, correct to criticize Trump for withdrawing from the Iran deal. But then, as Larison says, his own proposed solution is so vague as to be almost worthless. This is the libertarian standard bearer, or one of them. And you were called uh, unrealistic, a purist, uh, whatever, you know, by fashionable people for being skeptical of Weld. And here he's just written an article on foreign policy that could have been written by almost anyone in the foreign policy establishment, almost anyone. Nothing's going to change under a Bill Weld. I mean, obviously, thank heavens, we'll never have to test this hypothesis of mine, but nothing's going to change under a guy who writes an article like this. I mean, you know, I'm 47, so I've been around a while, but you you don't really need to be a longtime observer of the American political scene to see that. All right, so now we've got Lindsey Graham, who tweets out, American isolationism did not work before World War II, did not work before 9-11, will not work now. This really is the the level these people are at. Now, I, I don't know. I mean, Lindsey Graham's probably not an idiot. He's probably got a more sophisticated understanding than this, but he figures my audience is probably at a sixth or seventh grade level. Let me just repeat some basic things using the smear word they've all been told to despise. And I'll just say they did not work as if the extremely complicated questions involved here are just a simple matter of five word sentences. It did not work before World War II. Did not work. (sighs) All right, we're going to look at this. Obviously, it's very fashionable to say that in the interwar period, the United States was isolationist. Okay, it wasn't by any definition we might consider. And I actually talked about this in, I think it was episode 1394. I have an episode where I take a portion of it to talk about the 1920s and the actual foreign policy of the 1920s. So I'm going to just take a few minutes just to describe for you some things that do not appear to resemble what an isolationist foreign policy would have to look like if that word is to mean anything. So here goes. In 1923, you have the German hyperinflation. And then you get from the U.S. the so-called Dawes Plan, which developed a new repayment schedule for German reparations, kind of reestablished the German currency. Dawes was also able to bring about the French withdrawal from the Ruhr The French had uh, occupied the Ruhr out of frustration at lackluster efforts at reparations payments by Germany. So, you know, not isolationism. That's engagement with the world, for better or worse. Not saying this is good or bad, just saying that that's not isolationism. There was the Kellogg-Briand Pact in 1928 that was a major um, initiative by some Americans to outlaw aggressive war. And I realize that there's nothing easier than to make fun of that, who's going to enforce that, and so on. But again, it's not done by people who are ignoring the world or putting their head in the sand or whatever. And even though the United States did not join the League of Nations, it did get involved with some league activities. And by the way, that I think is where people are getting the idea that the United States was isolationist in the 1920s. It didn't join the League of Nations after World War I, and then combine that with the fact that there were higher protective tariffs in the 1920s, and that has a, you could say, an isolationist aspect to it in that you're uh, diminishing the amount of trade you're engaging in with the rest of the world, so that you could say that has an isolationist aspect. Or the 
reduction in immigration levels. So immigration levels were capped at something like 150,000 people a year. And that's, you, you could say that that had some kind of isolationist element. In other words, I'm just trying to find some way that you could plausibly use this crazy word. And I think that's where people are getting the idea. But apart from that, we see a lot of involvement in world affairs. So, for example, the United States was involved in the Committee on Intellectual Cooperation of the League of Nations because the idea there was that intellectuals had really disgraced themselves during World War I. They had just become shills for their own national governments. And it was thought that what we need, frankly, is better international understanding. And that will come about through meetings of intellectuals and, and more communication between intellectuals and conferences. And for example, one project was textbook revision. Because if the textbooks are saying that the Germans are just uh, uncivilized Huns, well, this is not going to contribute to international understanding. So we want to revise the textbooks so that they're not just chauvinistic. Also, the encouragement of learning the history and languages of other countries. This is also being encouraged uh, through this means. And in particular, in the United States, we see much, much more emphasis and on and development of the disciplines of Russian, Chinese, and Japanese history and languages being taught. So the thought was the more we understand each other, the lower the possibility of misunderstanding and potential conflict. It's also at this time that the student exchange program really takes off, and it's pretty obvious how that is a form of cultural engagement with the rest of the world. Now, we might also mention the Washington Naval Conference of 1921 to 22. A lot comes out of this. The, one of the main goals of it was to bring about naval disarmament. So you had the United States talking to Britain, France, Italy, and Japan about doing that. And the result was actual disarmament, not just a slowing of the rate of growth of armaments, but actual disarmament. I mean, you had major powers of the world actually blowing up some of their largest ships um, called capital ships, and they came up with a formula for arms limitation. So that actually happened. Also coming out of that conference, because there were other countries present as well, were the Nine Power Pact, which consisted of the U.S., Britain, France, and Japan, along with China and four other European countries, to maintain the open door in China. That is to say, to make sure that trade with China would be unhampered, unhindered, that there wouldn't be an attempt by some European countries to carve out spheres of influence for themselves or exclusive privileges or whatever, that they might manage to wring out of a weak Chinese regime that would be at odds with the principle of the open door. So the Nine Power Pact pledges the countries in question to maintain the open door in China. Then we get the Four Power Pact, and that's the U.S., Britain, France, and Japan, in which those countries pledge to consult on matters pertaining to security in the Pacific. Obviously, the U.S., for example, has the Philippines, has some stake in that. So the point is, again, if the U.S. were isolationist, it wouldn't care what these other countries think. It wouldn't be entering into agreements like this. So much for the 1920s. Then we have to remember that Lindsey Graham says that isolationism didn't work before 9-11. To think the United States was isolationist before 9-11 is astonishing. And Daniel Larison in one of his articles says, Graham's application of the label, namely the label isolationist, to America's so-called unipolar moment during the 1990s and early 2000s is deranged even for him. Nothing better demonstrates how meaningless the slur has become. 
Prior to 9-11, the U.S. had become the world's only superpower and had its forces deployed all over the globe. Graham can't acknowledge that it was the policies of the 1990s during this time of frequent meddling and interference that led to the attacks. It is not a coincidence that the U.S. started to have a problem with jihadist terrorists in the years following the decision to base troops in the Persian Gulf in the 1990s. And in particular, even Paul Wolfowitz admitted that deploying troops on the Arabian Peninsula definitely inflamed jihadist anger. And he was talking about that maybe the war in Iraq will help us to be able to shift those troops somewhere else where they won't cause as much offense. So he even admitted that at the time. All right, so that's what I want to say to you today. But I do have a neat thing somebody sent me some time ago. Obviously, you can't see it because this is an audio podcast, but it is right behind me in my office. And the handful of you who have visited my office have seen it. And that is a portrait bust of Ron Paul. Somebody sent me this, the uh, the artist. It is a stunning likeness. It is absolutely stunning to have this in my office. And underneath the bust of Dr. Paul, it's sitting on a base that says Liberty. It's a beautiful addition. And it's a great gift for people who, um, you know, you don't know what else to get for, right? I mean, you it's, it's a great gift for libertarians, Ron Paul fans, and so on. And I'm not being paid for this, by the way. I just, I love this bust. I, I think it's a beautiful addition to my office and I'm really glad to have it. It's 10 pounds. It's cast in solid bonded bronze. It's 13 inches high on a nine by six base. And it's a beautiful thing. So you can check it out if that interests you. I've created a redirect to get you right to the page, tomwoods.com slash bust. So again, this is not an ad or anything. I'm just telling you about a nice thing I have in my office that uh, I bet some of you might also enjoy having. So I'll link to that at tomwoods.com slash 1512. Now, next week, we got some interesting episodes coming up. Jameson Lopp returns to the program to talk further about Bitcoin. I've got Sheldon Richmond coming on to talk about his new book on Israel and Palestine. And Michael Malice on social media etiquette. That's going to be fun, too. So make sure you have subscribed to The Tom Woods Show, which you can do at uh, tomwoods.com slash Apple. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And over the weekend, why not read a Tom Woods ebook? AOC is Wrong is a good one because it's sm- like all this stuff about we're going to die in five seconds. All this stuff is in there and you're really going to enjoy it. So AOCiswrong.com is the website to download that book for free. And I'll see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.